0: And in the scripture, Philippians 2:14 to 18, he says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly onto the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and will rejoice with all of you. So you too shall be glad and rejoice with me. Good morning, Olive Tree. How are you all doing? Good. Thank you, Timo, for that um, uh, wonderful introduction. My name is Craig Stewart. For those of you that don't know me, um, like Tim said, I've, I've been here, coming to Olive Tree for around about 12 years. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Tess, who's actually not here. She was here in the first service. And uh, we've been married for 12 years as well. Um, we've got two sons one is uh, seven, Samuel, and the other is three. They're full on, uh, but we love them very much. Uh, we live in Durban North, and yeah, we feel very blessed to be a part of this community. This church has been an unbelievable help and rock for us in hard times, and um, we feel very blessed to to be able to worship and fellowship here. So, I am by trade a, a leadership and resilience coach, and um, I guess, very simply put. I help people and businesses become the best versions of themselves. So that's what I aim to do. And if you were to ask me what my purpose here on earth is, I would say with any shadow of a doubt, is to be a father to many, both to my sons and to the men that God sent to me to help mentor and coach. So yeah, Tim said, uh, it's actually not my first preach, I did that earlier this morning, so this is the second time around, and I believe it's always better second time around, so here goes. Um, but Ross has nagged me for many years now to be a part of, um, well, to come up and coach. Um, we've served in life groups, we've led life groups, we've served coffee, uh, we've served in kids' church, and um, today's the first time up have stage. So it feels really good to be up here. It feels a great honor and a great privilege, so thank you for having me. To all of those of you online, hi, and um, you're welcome as well. Uh, But before I dive in, let's just pray. Father, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share your word today to the hearts and minds of the people that hear it in present and online. We pray that uh, this message would resonate deeply with people's people's souls and that they would go out seeking your joy or full of your joy and be a light unto others and the city. Amen. So we've heard Ross and Shane and Brent speak into the book of Philippians. Um, It's a short book, but there's so much in in there. And today in particular, I'm gonna be speaking into Philippians 2, and the part of scripture that I'll speak into is the verses 14 to 18. But basically, Philippians is all about finding joy in our lives when our situations shout otherwise, and um, so quite contradictory, and if there's one thing I want us to take away from today, is that you and I have been given an opportunity to be joyful despite ourselves or despite our circumstances, um, and in, in addition to that, to go out and be a light unto the world, um, and perhaps that's really hard, and you're sitting there going, sure, Craig, that's great, but, you know, things are, are tough out there, and, and they are. Um, but we don't do this alone. Uh, we do this in a community of believers. And of course, when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, um, how can we go wrong? But Paul uses the, book, the, the word joy in this book 20 times, 20 times and the guy's in jail. So he's oppressed. Um, his last work is, is being called into question, uh, but he's learned to be content in any situation, finding joy, wherever he is. And therefore, one of the sturdiest things as Christians in our walk and as believers should be our joy. Now, as I mentioned, the main piece of scripture will be Philippians two fourteen to 18, but I'd like to fast forward ahead a little bit and read through Philippians two eighteen to 30, just to give some context to what I'm trying to say. It's quite a long passage, so bear with me, but we'll read it together. So it says here, I hope, it'll come up on the screen now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be, there we go, that I may also soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for all your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, He has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things will go with me. And I'm confident that the Lord will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Ephroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He was ill, And almost died, but God had mercy upon him, but not only on on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Now there's a lot in that scripture, so I'm not gonna dwell too much there, but what I wanna point out is that Paul mentioned send or sent five times in 11 verses, which is quite interesting. Now the Hebrew translation for the word send or sent is let go or sent on a mission. And I think that he's trying to say that you can only genuinely get sent somewhere that God wants you to go, firstly, when you have joy in your heart um, as the foundation but knowing that the place that God has sent you is a place that He has prepared. The opposite of joy is, of course, angry, anger, misery, frustration, and of course, fear. Genuinely, generally, when we feel these emotions, we, we kinda get stuck, or we flee. So we, we often find it hard to get sent, because getting sent is way harder when we feel fear in our hearts. Now, the reality is, you're probably saying, yeah, Craig, joy, seriously? It's not really a word that we associate with modern day living. Uh, but joy is something I think I need, and I think everyone else here needs. Um, it's a currency that we don't often uh, trade in. But it's interesting that today marks the one year anniversary of the writing that happened this time last year. In fact, today is the actual day that it all started. So I wanna use that, and I think it's pertinent for me to use that as a backdrop as I share with you this idea of joy and being light to those around us. Now to connect this piece of scripture and what I'm gonna talk to you about today is is a little story that I'd like to share with you about my family and our struggle with cancer. About 15 years ago, my father phoned me from uh, South Africa, I was living in the UK at the time, and he said to me, listen, my boy, I've got a um, seriously um, aggressive form of throat cancer and I need to have an operation immediately. And I was like, wow, okay. Dad, I'm on the next flight there, so I packed up my life in London and sped off uh, to join my family at home because they needed me, of course, uh, and I needed them. And I arrived home, and my dad was due to have the operation a week later, and he had the operation, which was, for those of you that are interested, um, it's called the laryngectomy. So, it basically is where the surgeon removes your larynx, um, and it's fairly invasive. So, he actually had something called a, um, a flap, where they, where, they do, where they cut away so much soft tissue that they had to replace... Uh, the soft tissue that they did remove so they cut his pec muscle and move it up like that so it it gets blood and all that sort of thing but I'm not really a doctor so I don't know too much about it but the reality is that the operation uh, was a a success and the doctor came to us afterwards and he said, listen, I've done my best, you know, had a terrible bedside manner, I've done my best and uh, your father won't live past his next birthday. I was like, wow, He he really laid that on me. Um, and it was a really hard pull to swallow, but as the, the weeks and the and the months sort of went by, um, you know, we were we were he didn't heal very well, and his wound didn't heal well, so it was a lot of trips to and from the hospital, antibiotics, and eventually we got him home and we started caring for him and feeding him and looking after him, and trying to be a light unto my father. Now. He, in addition to that, had to have chemotherapy and radiation, which is again, incredibly invasive and disruptive to your body. Um, But after time, he actually gained his physical strength, his wounds healed and he was better. Woohoo, miracle. And it was so exciting that we had kind of reached this point where my dad was better and everything was okay. Now, the months continued to pass, and things sort of got back to normal. We rebuilt our family. I decided to kind of make uh, you know, Durban or North South Africa my permanent home, although I was just traveling in London. And um, that's the fairy tale ending that I think we would all go after, you know, cancer, the, the, you know, God being the healer that he is, uh, redeeming us, redeeming my dad, bring him to full healing. But that's not really the way things went. My mum, um, a few years later, contracted the exactly, exactly the same cancer in exactly the same place, um, which was devastating. And she had to have an incredibly invasive option um, operation. Same surgeon, and this time he was just as blunt and bitter. And uh, he said, your mum's only going to have 5% chance of survival. And me and my sister and brother, and, and of course my dad would we were just dumbstruck. We just couldn't believe it. We, how could this be true? You know, we had had a first round of suffering. How could we now experience a second round of suffering? How is this even fair? I was 28 at the time and I was trying to forge a career in London and, you know, breaking ground and, 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 and living out my life and, and now I had to come back and, and care for my parents. But although my mind was questioning and prompting God for an alternative route around a very insurmountable problem, I knew deep down inside that I needed to serve my parents and be a light for them as they'd often done for myself. So I I served my family as best I could and there were moments where um, it was wonderful to be at home, it was wonderful to wake up in South Africa, I always found myself getting tripped up and complaining and grumbling at the fact that I had to deal with this. I was, again, like I said, 28, and I was at home, I was earning nothing. I said goodbye to some fairly good opportunities in the UK, and I was nursing my sick father back to health. How was this part of my plan? The silver lining, of course, is that God healed both my parents. And we lived a happy and healthy life thereafter. So, sadly, both of them are not actually with us anymore. My mum passed away earlier this year, and my dad passed away in 2011. Sorry, I forgot to show two images, if you just bring them up. That was my mum, actually recently, uh, who had, you can see how much trauma was exposed to her neck. And then if we go to the next slide, that was her... It's my sister-in-law on the left and my brother, she was in ICU not so long ago. Just some pictures to show you that, you know, it is incredibly traumatic experiencing something like that as a, as a youngster. But why, why do I tell you this story? Well, most of you are probably thinking, you know, that, we're gonna, that Craig is perhaps gonna focus on the fact that miracles happen all the time, and they did. Uh, I, don't, I don't dispute that. Or that sometimes all you need is 5% hope and that's good enough or the fact that God works through the hands and feet of doctors and nurses, and that modern medicine is amazing, it is, or that our bodies are an amazing creation and that you can never underestimate the power of the human spirit. Those are all good reasons. But the real reason I share that with you is that there were times when I really resented my mother and father for what felt like was, what felt like was a curse. Of course, I was happy that they had overcome cancer and that we were a a united family, but I'd spent so much of my adult life caring for them. I'd push pause on kind of all my dreams. And I know that my reality in that space was very selfish and very much a victim mindset, but I found that the smaller moments were always the hardest for me. I knew that God had the biggest stuff covered. I had faith for that, plenty of faith, you know, like they were gonna be healed, we were gonna see a miracle. But the smaller moments were always the most difficult. And few come to mind, smaller moments like having to clean my father's wounds, um, the frustration I I felt um, when I had to feed my mum, she had what they call a stomach peg, so she couldn't eat orally. Um, We had to blend all her food, blend and blitz her food, so it was in liquid form and then pour it into a great big syringe that would go into her stomach, and sometimes forget to, she would forget to close the top of that, and she would cough, and it would go everywhere, all over us, and the bed sheets, and I mean, reflecting on it's quite funny, but at the time, like, you can imagine, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I spent some, anyway. Um, or the countless travels that we went to, the trips between Maritzburg and Durban, because they were in hospital here in Durban, or having to answer their calls and SMSs at the most inopportune moments when they felt lonely or sad, or having to try and make them a part of some of our family gatherings, which is always a bit of a logistical nightmare because uh, we had carers and oxygen machines and just a bunch of stuff that came along with the deal. But my personal favourite was always when people, shame, bless their hearts, they would always come up to me and go, how is your mum, how is your dad? Oh, they're such wonderful people, they're so strong. And of course they were right. But I was like, hang on, what about me? I'm, I, I'm the one that has pushed pause in my life. I absolutely love my mother and father and a, and a tighter family bond you wouldn't find anywhere. Of course, love my sister and brother too, but I was young and frustrated and I was super mad with God. As the months passed and their wounds healed, I slowly began to find joy. Now the reason I tell you that story is what I'd like to know from my story and connect it to your spaces is what are the stories that you have in this room that are similar to to mine, that you can connect with an experience of deep trauma where you've had to push pause in your life and care for someone close to you? What are your stories of uh, of challenge? and having to make a conscious decision to try and fight for joy and be a light for those people around us. The reality is that we only need to cast our minds over the last two years to find countless stories of struggle and hardship. COVID, rioting, flooding, job losses, load shedding, mental health issues, retrenchments, liquidations. The list goes on and on. And I'm certain that if we asked People here in the congregation, there would be loads of stories that we could connect with, stories of hardship and struggle. And I often find myself sometimes with, with complete strangers sitting down and getting into that complaining game where, oh, you know, the government and, you know, load shedding and, oh, there goes another politician and, you know, and you get sucked into that uh, narrative and you just join and jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, I know, it's just terrible. And, you know, we, we get caught up in that. But whenever I do, and whenever I've been a part of those conversations, I've always found myself a little more hopeless and a little less joyful. Now, I'm not for one moment saying that our struggles are unimportant, they are. All your struggles, my struggles, they shape who we are, if we allow them to, but what I am saying is that struggle is a part of life, we know this. And so much what has happened over the past years has been completely out of our control. And I'm so, I've heard this time and time again, oh, I just want life to go back to the way it was. I want life to be easy, can't it be easy? Well, both you and I know that life is never gonna go back to the way things were, and that easy has a cost. But the irony is that what you focus on grows. Surely there's something that we get to shift into that's more joyful. So as I said earlier, I have the privilege of being a leadership and resilience coach. I run my own coaching practice. Uh, check me out, apexcoaching.ca. shameless pun for my own business, not scared to sh- say that. And over the past while, it's outside of having to be a leadership and resilience coach, I've had to develop my skills in the trauma space as well, because trauma is very much a part of where we're at and how most people are kind of navigating life at the moment. So you'll find that that word comes up time and time again, trauma, trauma, trauma. Now, I studied neuroscience. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not that clever, unfortunately. But I do know a little bit about neuroscience. And neuroscience basically is how our nervous system, our brain, and the world around us is connected and how we respond to it as a result, So a quick neuroscience lesson is the main part of the brain, which is called the limbic system, is divided into four main parts. The hypothalamus, the hippocampus. The two that I want to focus on today is the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, as some people know it as the limbic cortex. So the amygdala is a very important part of our brain. It helps us coordinate our responses to things in our environment. Some people call it our reptilian brain, because it's responsible for our flight, fright, or freeze response. Okay, we all know this, we've heard that before. Um, And our prefrontal cortex, which is just behind our forehead, is responsible for mood, motivation, idea generation, creativity, and judgment. Now, the interesting part of what I do is, in session, I try and help people engage their prefrontal cortex. And the result of that is we make better decisions, we make better choices, and ultimately, gives us joy. Now when we're being led by our amygdala, okay, it's not a bad thing. So when our body experiences threat, okay, we almost go into like overdrive. Our, our, our amygdala takes over. And, and you'll hear sometimes people that go through traumatic experiences just say, I don't know what happened, my, you know, my mind just took over. And it does. It just takes over, which is phenomenal. Um, now, to make decisions in that survival state, flight, flight, or freeze, you're obviously, you're gonna make some bad decisions. Now, the reality is in, in the moment, the amygdala is a very good thing because it floods your body with adrenaline and cortisol. It sends blood to the, your extremities, your legs and your hands so that you can either fight what's coming at you or run away. Um, but to remain in this state is quite destructive. The reality is that a lot of people continue to stay in this state. Now, the way that kind of shows up in, in life is, is, is that we, we're, we're deeply traumatised. So the, the clinical definition of what we've been through, I think, as an Italians, or certainly as South Africans, is compound trauma, a series of traumatic events over an extended period of time, say two years. Now, there are four different types of trauma. There's uh, he, there's the, the, what I, I like to call a hero stage, which is where people run toward the chaos, okay? It's like you know when they were rioting, people were manning roadblocks and doing all of those crazy things, um, which were good. I, I didn't do that because I didn't have a gun or anything. I just had a baseball bat, I don't know. Um, the second th- uh, stage of trauma is the honeymoon stage, which is, where, where the rioting of floods are over, breathe a sigh of relief. It's almost a euphoric stage where um, we get involved in almost a humanitarian effort. So we go and get involved in street cleanups like we did when there, were, there was rioting, flooding. We go and clean the beaches, send out food parcels, but that dissipates quite quickly. And the stage that most people I think are at, well certainly myself, is in a bit of a disillusion stage, which is the third stage. And that's depicted really by the demands of life, on one hand, and the energy that I have. Now, four years ago, those two entities were quite close together. Life demanded stuff of me, I had the energy for it, and I met it as I needed to. What's happening now, over a period of time, is that life is demanding a hell of a lot more of us than than we realize, and the energy that we have has dissipated. So what's happening is there's been a big gap between the two. So you find that people are just, oh, I don't want to. You know, the smallest of things. Ah, oh, I'm not keen. I don't want to get involved. And that shows up in, in, in funny ways, like apathy. Nah, I don't care. You know, let this country go to the dogs. Um, escapism, you know, when I was deeply traumatised, I just dived into Netflix because I want to get away from my world. Uh, addiction um, or avoidance. Now, we all know that if we engage in those sorts of things or those sorts of activities over time, the problem doesn't go away, really. Of course we know that. But what is the South African way of dealing with trauma? I'll buy anyone a coffee who gives me a good, good answer. Yes, ma'am. Big pardon? Humor, brilliant. You get a coffee, please remind me afterwards. Who else? It can't be too many of you because can't, I can't all be buying your coffees, okay? Okay, so coffee to that lady. Anyone up in the gallery? How do South Africans deal with trauma? Complain, yeah. Alcohol, yes. <laughs> okay, we complain, but what we do is we suppress our trauma. Sweep it under the rug. So the comments that come out is, moros nog There's a saying in Zulu, nomaganjan, which means, we'll just try again. Uh, Am I right, nomaganjan, yeah? Okay, and one of my favourite saying, it is what it is. And of course, it is true, but like, okay, it is what it is. Now, if we put up that other slide, um, there's a a, a noun called "quasilience," where we're marrying the word Quazilinatal and resilience. We're mixing them together and it says, it applies to those who dwell in KZN, South Africa, almost a numbing, a coping skill that we've developed due to COVID, lockdowns, rioting, looting, and flooding of excessive proportions. Humour. There you go. Okay, thank you. So, we do deal with trauma in different ways. But Sigmund Freud says this, unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth in uglier ways. He often says that that sometimes unexpressed emotions leak out of us. So where does this leave us? Surely there's more. Surely we get to shift into something different, something a little bit more joyful. But the truth is that Christ never leaves us in our space. So if we were to rely on ourselves, I'd probably be a bit of a basket case, to be honest, okay? And the irony is that even in 2020, I was retrenched, I started a business, and we adopted a son, all in the space of COVID. And I was fine. I thought I was fine. 2021 came. What happened? Boom, Hit the wall. I got PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And all that stress, all that trauma just came crashing down on me after I came back from leave in July. I mean, Jan- um, January. So Paul challenges us. And he encourages us that we need to find joy and be the light. And in the scripture, Philippians two fourteen to 18, he says this, and I'm gonna read it with you. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly onto the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and will rejoice with all of you. So you too shall be glad and rejoice with me. The book overflows with joy and thanksgiving, which is crazy because the guy who's writing it is in jail. I wish Paul had been a little bit more realistic and a little bit bit more down to earth. He could have said, try and do most things without complaining and blaming, okay? That would have been a little bit easier to get our head round. I could give it a try, but all things? I don't know. He goes on to say that we need to shine like lights in the world. The interesting thing about a light, whether it's a star or a burning candle, is that it's always brightest when The space around them is darkest. Don't you think we need to be lights to those people around us? We get to choose. So when we're in conversation next, and I've been guilty of this so many times where I've had the opportunity to point people toward the direction of Christ and shine His light on their situation and mine, but I've chosen not to because of fear of my reputation. The truth is that we can't do this alone, which is why in verse 16, he says, hold firmly to the word of life, which helps us sustain our light and ensure that it remains bright. God's word is our daily bread. It's our sustenance to get us through life. But outside of the blaming and finger pointing gain is another type of the way in which people deal with us. It's called toxic positivity. I don't know if you've heard of it, it's actually a term where people are always, hey, so positive, things are going well, you know, load shedding. don't worry, it's an opportunity for you to play Sudoku with your children or something like that, and you're like, seriously, I, I don't need toxic positivity. But people try and put a positive spin in that frame of mind on all experiences, even those that are profoundly tragic. But all of this has left people actually feeling fatigued. Who's feeling fatigued? I am, okay, I hope you're not feeling tired because then I'm boring you, okay? But I'm feeling fatigued, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, emotional fatigue, decision fatigue, empathy fatigue. People are feeling burnt out and strung out. And yet what Paul is calling us to do and be He encourages us to hold fast onto the word of life as we shine our light, which gives us life and will help us continue shining. And then he goes on to say, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud and did not run or flee in vain. So going back to my story, despite myself, upon reflection of that, I was so glad that I chose to nurse my parents back to health. Okay, they're not with me anymore but those moments were beautiful. They were a gift because if I w- had the opportunity to do them again, I would. Probably not the one where the, you know, the, the liquid gets flashed all over me, but I wouldn't have changed it anything because I got the opportunity to be a light to my mum and dad. And they gave me joy and that joy led to hope. And sometimes that's all I had, but ironically, it was all I really ever needed. I said earlier what you focus on grows, and I gave you a short explanation of what the brain does when we are triggered negatively and positively. It oscillates between the, having our amygdala in control and having our prefrontal cortex into control. Flight, flight, or freeze, or the prefrontal cortex, which helps engage your brain properly, helps you make good and, and, and solid decisions. The irony is that complaining, blaming, triggers the amygdala because it takes us back to those moments of trauma. You could try it at home. If you go back and say today over lunch, hey, remember this time last year, what did you feel? You'll actually start to get sweaty palms, maybe a headache, your heart will start racing because trauma shows up um, physiologically as well. When we choose joy, we hand over the complexity of trying to solve something unsolvable to God. And it is He who gives us a different picture to look at than the one that we're looking at currently. Which brain have you been living out of lately, folks? A while ago, uh, it was about two weeks ago, I went to the fridge, I was very hungry, and in our house we call it hangry, where you're hungry and angry. So I was like, oh, so hangry. Go to the fridge, open it up, and I'm like, looking for food, looking for food, oh, there's nothing there. Okay, close the door, sit down, I think i worked a little bit more, and then I was like, no, I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry. okay. Now, my thinking was that in the space of five minutes, something miraculously and delicious had appeared in the fridge. And my disappointment was real. When I opened the fridge, I was like, oh, okay, there's nothing there. Okay, that's fine. Um, but what I did notice were a whole lot of empty Tupperware in the fridge that, that had sort of leftover food and stuff in. And I sort of started cleaning the fridge out, taking the old food, throwing it away. And God actually spoke to me and he said, imagine that this fridge is your mind. How many empty Tupperware have you left in your mind or focusing on that is sapping you of your emotion, your energy, your ability to focus? What are you focusing on? Now the irony is that after clearing the fridge out, okay, I found a delicious piece of brine meat, which I then scoffed down, and I was happy and joyful, okay? Remove the blaming, grumbling from our lives, be a light unto the world, and who knows what joy awaits us. Yes, our country is in a dark space, folks. Durban is a hard place to live in at the moment. Maybe because of Eskom, but fortunately (laughs) we don't have load shedding. Things are tough. But how often has God seen this play out before? In the history of the Bible, go back, read it. So many stories of God completely redeeming a city or a country in an instant. Where are we placing our joy, hope, and faith? Now, I wanted to leave you with a story that kind of gave us joy, or gives me joy. So this week, preparing the sermon, which takes a long time, and. Uh, Trying to get things done, and you know, need to prepare a sermon. And I came back home, and the boys were sort of there on holiday, and um, Tess, my wife, was like getting ready to go to boot camp. And I was like, oh, you know, a bit of a bad mood. And she was like, why are you in a bad mood? Which is like red rag to a bull. It's like oh, I'm not in a bad mood. What do you mean? Of course, I was in a bad mood. And she went to boot camp, and the boys were watching TV and eating their dinner, and I was in the kitchen. And God just said, put on some music. I was like, okay, cool. Put some music on cooking. Um, And then I'm I'm a bit of an old school rock, not fundy, but a a bit of a rock nut. And I I love old school rock and roll. And um, there's one song in particular by a band called ACDC. Youngsters, you won't know what I'm talking about. But uh, the band called ACDC, and there's a particular song called Money Talks. You know that song? Come on, come on, listen to them. You know that song? Some of you are like nodding your heads. Others are like, what is this I'm talking about? Anyway, it comes on and God says, turn it up. So I turn it up, crank it up, and my boys come through, and They're like, dad, what's going on? And I'm like, no, this is rock and roll, boys, come. And they, we, before you knew it, ACDC was in our kitchen. We had pots and pans out. The boys were playing the drums with wooden spoons, breaking them. Tupperwares were getting smashed. Joe was on his little plastic guitar. I was air guitaring myself. Uh, into an oblivion. It was just the most joyful. We were all laughing. Tess, my wife comes back, she opens the door and goes, whoa, what's going on? And you're like, no, we're just in the moment. And I think sometimes that's often what happens. And I said to you earlier, the hardest thing for me was always finding joy in the smaller moments. I think sometimes what we find ourselves guilty of is living so much in the future or the past that we forget about the now. Eckhart Tolle, speaks about this idea that all we have is now. And ironically, that when I heard and obeyed, tuned into what God was saying and his frequency, put the music on, we had such a joyful moment. Now is all we have. The gospel's always so full of joy and light And I'd like to link what Paul says to the fact that when we focus our eyes on Jesus, engage our prefrontal cortex and be the light, we find joy in that place. It comes from the book of Matthew, chapter two, verses 10 and nine. And it goes like this. When it comes up. No, wrong one. Oh, sorry. I'll show those at the end. Anyway, you can play those now, sorry. Uh, Play play those through now. That's actually, I wanted to show you those. The pictures of my mum, fully restored, healed. That's her in a pink gown with my boys there, my sister, my sister-in-law, her two girls. Next slide, thank you. Sorry, I'm confusing you, my first time. That was last year, her 67th birthday. Ironically, her birthday was last week uh, on Wednesday. She would have been 68. It's another picture of her looking glamorous and my brother and sister with me, and then we took a a trip up one random day just to go and spend a bit of time with her. That's Joe, the little one, and Sam, the bigger one. So there is redemption, there is joy, in spite of hardship, despite our circumstances. So the scripture that I was gonna read to you is from Matthew uh, 2, verses 9 and 10. If you could put it up there. You got it? Okay, I'll read it to you. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We can only imagine the joy experienced by the wise men of old when they saw the brilliant star that led them to Jesus. Friends, if you're feeling like I am today, we need joy joy. We need it. And I don't know what you're facing today, and I certainly don't know what to make of the last two years, and even more uncertain as to what's to come. But one thing I do know is that when we focus our eyes on Jesus, we give Him our worries, our concerns, the things that are tripping us up, the things that are making us complain, blame, and grumble about, that we receive joy and ultimately we're a light to someone else. I have a friend who said to me that the only way to navigate an ever-changing world is to have faith and joy in an unchanging God. Let your focus fall on Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, and He will bring us hope, joy, and help us to be a light unto those people that need us. Let's pray. Father Lord, thank you for the people here today. Thank you for those that are listening in online. Thank you that we, in a small way, get to change the course of history just by being joyful, just by focusing on you, your love. We pray, Father God, that you would watch over our city, that you would redeem the people of the city and bring them into a new fullness of hope that they would focus on what's good with this world, not what's wrong. Be a part of building our nation back up again. Father, thank you for the moments of struggle that we've had in our lives. Although we don't wanna revisit those moments, Father God, upon reflection, you've helped them, you've helped us use that and point us in the direction that when we focus on joy and and set our sights on you, amazing things will happen. So we thank you, Father God, and we pray your blessing over this church, over the people of our city and our country. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you, friends. Join us for a tea and coffee outside. Great to share that with you.